Good morning, church family. I, I love that video. You know I love that video. We've been talking about speaking life and how important it is right now in this season to, to, to make sure that the words that are coming out of our mouths convey the message that, that Jesus has put upon our heart. And I, I've always loved Proverbs 16, 21. This is from the message version, but it says, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. And all those different contexts that we get to choose, choose life. As March said, the, the tongue, a little tiny thing, but, but can ignite a great fire or it can steer a great ship. So just choose wisely. And we're going to see some of that stuff as we get to our, our Bible study this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, if not, hey, you got time to get up, get up and get it. We're in Exodus chapter 20. We've been spending this week and last week talking about God's top 10. And remember how radical this notion is. Think about if God said, here are the top 10 things that are most important to me. We would say, what I want to know those. And I think the answer for everybody here listening says, yeah, I want to know those. I want to know the top 10 most important things to God. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the next six this morning. We're going to finish chapter, well, we're going to finish the, the 17 verses that lay out the 10 commandments. God's God's Ten Commandments are what we're calling His Top Ten. So pray with me, and we're going to get into the text, and we're going to study this together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, when we come before you, God, there there comes to be a time through worship. Father, this beautiful family led us into worship. We find ourselves before you. We find ourselves in the throne of grace. And Father, sometimes I find myself just looking back at my week and think, I didn't speak life to my wife. I didn't speak life to my kids. I didn't speak life to my neighbor. And, and sometimes I can feel like here I am and, and what do I do? And it's all, it all can feel like it's lost or, or it can all feel like it's going to be gained because we simply say, God, here I am. Forgive me. Wash me white as snow. Give me a new beginning this morning. God, I pray that everybody here right now is ready for a new beginning this morning, ready for a brand new start to a brand new week, a brand new day, and an opportunity to walk faithfully with you again. God, that's what's incredible about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what's incredible about your blood. That's what's incredible about the work that you've done for us. God, you are able to wash us white as snow and take away our sins as far as the east is from the west. And when we come to you in this capacity, you cleanse us, you wash us. So I pray, God, now you would do that. Before we get into any more of our service, now you would do that. And you prepare us to receive your implanted word and, and the commands, the, the important top 10 things that you want to share with us. Father, we, we ask that you be the teacher, you Holy Spirit, Bust through the internet airwaves, bust through devices and speak to hearts, God. We want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. Your, your servants, your church here, God, we're listening. And so speak, we pray, through your living and active word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Exodus 20. Now, as we, as we break through this, I got a little bit of a lengthy introduction again this morning, but we're, we're setting this up, and I want to tell you, I'm trying not to repeat what I said last week, which means this, you need to go back and you need to listen to last week's message if you didn't listen to it, because they're connected, right? We covered the first four commandments, the first four things on God's list of top 10 most important things, and now we're going to cover the next six, which means you need to listen to it. They are connected, but the gist of what I said last week was that these things are still 
still for today. These aren't irrelevant things. These aren't old, outdated things. These are unchanging, eternal things, which means they're still for us today. This is God's moral law. This is God's heart. And last week, specifically, God told us how he wants to be loved. I mean, just think about that. He says, I want you to love me in this way. Since you're my people, since I've delivered you, your response to me through faith and obedience, is I want it to look like this, right? God's saying, this is my love language. Obey me like this. So again, go back and listen to that. But as we move into today's text, what we're going to be talking about now is how God wants us to love each other, right? Jesus takes all of these top 10. We're going to look at the verse in a minute, but he's going to take all of these top 10 verses, all these top 10 commandments, and he's going to say, They can all be summed up with two subcategories, love God, love people. And that's his command to us and how relevant, how pertinent, how needful it is for us to engage with some of these things. So just kind of tune in for that. That's where we're going. Now, as we kind of set the stage again, I also want to build us up back to that moment where the people of Israel are at, where the children of Israel are when God is breaking these things down. Remember what he's already done. It's very, very important for us to remember the first thing God says in chapter 20 when he's gathered all these people here. He says in verse 2, look at verse 2 with me again. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Right? He says, I want you to remember, and they're all going to remember, right? They've been personal eyewitnesses to see all that God has done. They've prayed to God, they cried out to God, and he rescued them. He redeemed them. He redeemed them out of the bondage and the oppression that they were experiencing under, under Pharaoh in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea for them. He turned the bitter waters and made them sweet for them. He is right now raining down bread from heaven in the form of manna to feed them. And the water is gushing from the rock that is following them, showing them, teaching them, God satisfies our thirst. All of that has already happened. And then the Lord invites them all personally to come to the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get as close as they possibly can. Don't touch the mountain, right? But get as close as they possibly can. How did they get there? Remember, God bore them on eagles' wings. He lifted them up and carried them into his presence. And then there's been all this incredible supernatural displays, the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the the cloud and then the booming voice of God. That's all happening as they sit here, standing there, trembling before the presence presence of God as remember he speaks to them I can't emphasize that enough he is speaking to to all the people two plus million people are greater than Alameda County right marching big group of people and God is speaking to them which means this that these top 10 things they really are God's top 10 as we cover some of these today there's going to be some challenging things you might even think I don't agree with that one But I want you to know the church didn't call these the top 10. Moses didn't come up with these. God spoke them himself. So if we have a problem with them, we have a problem with God. We have a problem with God, right? I I don't want to take that up with God. I want to obey and submit to God. But do know that he spoke these things. He spoke them into existence. They're God breathed. It's God's word. And as we've seen this pattern Throughout the book of Exodus, as I'm making hopefully this clear, God saves first. God delivers first. God redeems first. And then he sanctifies. 
and then he sets apart his people for holy use. He saves, then he sanctifies in that order. And the same thing has happened for you and I. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the penalty we owed. He rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, the devil, and the grave. All that contended against us, all that held us captive. He set free the captives. He saves us, and then he sanctifies us. He says, I will meet you where you were at, but I'm not going to leave you where I found you. I'm going to buy you out of that situation and teach you a better way. Come and follow me. And he shapes us and he remakes us and he molds us into his image. So again, he saves and he sanctifies. I'm making this order hopefully as clear as I possibly can because that's what's happening here. He saved them. He's redeemed them. There should be two plus million people grateful, amazed at what God has done, what they've all witnessed him do. And they're willing to say, Father, we want to obey you. You are indeed our God. We want to be your people. And so we're willing to do it your way. And then God lays out his top 10 things. So so remember the context of what is going on there. But back to this idea of what Jesus says to all of us, affirming that all of these things are still for today. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 22. This is going to be an important verse because this is kind of our our covering for everything we're talking about. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, remember he's answering the question, what is the great commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first first and great commandment. All right, that's the first and great commandment. But he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. So he's, he's giving us the subheading. The first four commandments, the first four in God's list of top 10, they are how we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he wants us to do. That's what it looked like. We talked about that last week. But now what we're gonna be talking about this morning, it all is loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving people. So we're gonna find out how does God want us to love each other? What does it look like to love our neighbor? Who is our neighbor, by the way? And we're going to talk about all of those things, but I want to slow down just one more minute before we get to the text, and I want us to understand this. We can't do the last six until we do the first four. We can't love people unless we first love God. We're never going to love people the way God wants us to love people unless we love God the way that God wants to be loved. We need to understand that. I'm calling it, there's a vertical relationship that we have to have in order with God in order to have our horizontal relationship with our neighbor, with the people around us in order, effective the right way, right? We just have to do it that way. We have to be in order with God to receive the love from him with which to then love the people around us. If we don't do that, it's like playing an arcade game that isn't plugged in. Oh, you can imagine you're doing it right. You can imagine things are happening. You can be moving those joysticks and pounding those buttons, but you know, nothing's happening because there's no power, There's nothing to inject energy to the game. You're just pretending. And that's what we can fall into a lot. We're we're pretending to love people God's way, but when we don't love God first, we're not loving them God's way. It has to happen in order. We cannot have our horizontal relationship with people in order God's way if our vertical relationship is out of order. And we know that to be true because all we have to do is take a look at our world right now. 
All, all we have to do is look at people and say, well, 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 I can tell you love some people. I can tell you're passionate about that one issue, but I can also tell you're so busy pointing out what's wrong with everybody else that you're unwilling to acknowledge that you're not right with God either. Right? We can be so focused on the horizontal, peripheral things that we're missing the most important relationship. We're missing that we're not right with the Lord. And so then everything else is out of order. But that's, that's our world. We have people in our world, they're posturing themselves and they say this, I'm only going to love those who love me. I'm only going to love those who agree with me or fly my flag or agree with my post, my position, my stance, retweet what I want them to retweet, don't retweet what I don't want them to retweet. If they do, I'm okay to hate them. Think about how radical that is. I'm gonna love those who love me. I'm gonna hate those who hate me. Christians, my brothers and sisters, Jesus taught us a different way to conduct ourselves in relationships with people. Jesus taught us the opposite of that. In fact, look at what Jesus says. This is Matthew chapter 5, the great teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We've all heard that said, haven't we? In fact, that's the same message the world still preaches today. Agree with those who agree with you. Vilify, hate, shame, ignore, bash, whatever you want to call it, those who don't. Right? Love your enemy or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says this. Look at this next verse. But I say to you, Jesus speaking, red letters, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus teaches us a different way, a way that is in absolute contrast to the way that this world loves. And we kind of look at this, we say, how can we do that? Why would I even want to do that? Maybe somebody is honestly saying in their heart right now, and the answer is because look at who we are now, look at who we desire to be now. The rest of the verse says this, Jesus says that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes the sun rise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Listen, he says, therefore you shall be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Christians, what can we say about this? We can say at least three things. Number one, Jesus is reaching for more in us. Jesus is calling more out of us. Jesus is willing to equip us to do something far more radical than this world is doing currently or this world has ever done and that's called love your neighbor as yourself. Be perfect, be mature, be holy as I am holy and that has to bring us right back to the vertical relationship that we need with the Lord God himself because we can't do it without him. We cannot love people the way we're called to love people unless we are first right with God and can receive the love that he wants to give to us. Jesus is the only one who can write the broken vertical relationship that we all have had with God. 
Jesus is necessity for us to be able to come back reconciling what was once in opposition. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin is the problem. Jesus came as the remedy, the solution to reconcile us back. But think about it, to fulfill, to remedy, to rectify, whatever you want to use, to fix the broken vertical relationship. He fixes it. Jesus now is our anchor heaven where Jesus is our vertical bridge into heaven, into the throne of grace where we can come to the Father and find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. You know what I need help doing sometimes? Loving people. Loving the people around me. Loving my neighbor as myself. But Jesus has done that. Jesus did that first. So when we love God first with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're seeking to have that vertical relationship in order. Now we can worry about. Now we can pay attention to the horizontal. Think about it this way. God fixed the broken vertical relationship when he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. Jesus died, rose again, ascended. And then Jesus sent the Holy Spirit again vertically down to us. What? So we can fix the horizontal relationship with the people around us. What's the solution? Still, you got to get right with Jesus. But he empowers us Christians to be the church, to be disciples, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, to testifying the glory of God's grace and the effective work that he's begun in us. How do we show them that? Our love one for another. For, for, for love, love not being a resounding gong without love. I'm, I'm trying to overemphasize this, but that's what is so needed here in this point, and it has to be opposite of what the world is doing now. This is nothing the way it looks to transform this world. This is not what the book of Acts was demonstrating for us. This is not the way Jesus lived. And so Christians, we've got to agree with what the Bible teaches, what Jesus teaches, get right with the Lord, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and now we're ready to love our neighbor as ourself. So I'm hoping you're seeing that order. That's why this order is perfect in God's top 10. The vertical relationship first, horizontal next. And don't you just love that, right? Vertical, horizontal, what's the shape of that? That's the shape of a cross. Which means anytime you think love God, love people, you think I need Jesus. Love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love my neighbor as myself. I need Jesus. I need the cross. And I have the cross. And I can deny myself, pick up my cross daily, and follow him. Be filled with the strength and supply of the Spirit. Obey him and do things the way he's commanding me to do them. Why would I want to do them at all? Because he did it first for me. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I brought you out of Egypt for us. I lived the life you couldn't. I died the death you deserved. I rose from the grave. Right? That's our, that's our answer. So we say, okay, yes, Lord. Help me. But yes, Lord. And he says, yes and amen. I will do that both for you. So that's where we're at. That's where we're, we're picking this up. So I hope we, we all agree. I want to do this. I want to be faithful. I want to obey. I want to put my faith in obedience and love my neighbor as as myself. So let's move on to the next question. We all want to know, who's my neighbor, right? We, we like to say, well, well, I think my neighbor's only my brother, or I think my neighbor's only the one who, who is lovely. We already read, we, you saw the verse, we're, we're called to love our neighbors and bless those who persecute us and all those other things. So we know we need to love them, but who else is our neighbor? In, this, in these six commands, we're going to see different relationships that apply in different contexts. But you do notice Jesus' own words, he takes all six of those and says, all of them are your neighbor. Because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And if he takes all six of those and sums them all up, that means, listen, our parents are our neighbor. 
our spouses, our, our neighbor. Anyone that we're in any transactional business relationship with is our neighbor. Anything that we could steal from any person is our neighbor. And also, in case you're wondering, your neighbor neighbor is also your neighbor. That's our neighbor. So it's all-encompassing. Every single person in a horizontal relationship or proximity to you and I, Christians, is our neighbor. And we're called to love them as ourselves. So let's see how this looks practically. Looking at this six commandments this morning, Exodus 20, picking up in verse 12. Commandment number five, God says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So there they are. That's our text. We'll look at a few more reference verses along the way, but that's our text in Exodus this morning. The six commands that all sum up, love your neighbor as yourself. So so what do these things mean? Remember the questions we're going to ask. What do they mean? What do they teach us about God? So commandment number five, honor your father and mother. What does this tell us about? The, the first transition that, that the Lord God himself speaking is he says, the way you're going to start loving your neighbor at your house, it starts right where you live. Right in the home you were born. It starts in your home. I want you, the first people that you even meet on planet earth, your parents, I want you to love them. I want you to honor them. And when we think about what this means, what does it mean to honor your father and your mother? It literally means to treat them with heaviness or to give weight to them. Now, when you think about that, think about it in the context like this. The, the precious metals of this world, gold, silver, bronze, copper, things like that, they're measured by their value in weight. The more weighty, the more valuable they are. And that's the same idea. He says, I want you to give weight, attribute weight, value, heaviness to your parents. Treat them with honor. They are precious. They are valuable. Think about this. By the very definition that they are our parents means we would not be here without them. Now, in all of these commandments, here's kind of a disclaimer. In all of these commandments we're going to talk about, I know that there are what-if situations. I know you could come up with what-if situations and try to be able to, to, to maybe get some different answers that what we're talking about. And I'll tell you this, I'd love to talk to you personally about your what-if situation. But this morning, I'm aiming to keep things simple because the commandments are simple. God doesn't give us a whole lot of explanation when he gives them to the children of Israel. He just, he gives them. So let's just do that. We're going to keep it simple this morning. So he's honor your father and your mother. And uh, when he says it, it begins in the home, this is where it starts. It means wherever possible, however possible, make it your aim to do this. Again, why? Because God commands it. He says, this is how I want you to love people around you. And it should start in the home. Now, what does this teach us about God? He wants us to learn respect and authority at a very young age. He wants us to learn to value our elders, to value the people over us at a very young age. Learning to love your mother and father is going to teach you how to learn to love and obey God. 
That's, that's where it begins. And so it begins in a godly home. God is trying to build a godly nation. God is telling them how to be his people. And he wants the family unit to be a, a, a foundational stone, a building block within the nation of Israel. He's always the cornerstone, the most important aspect of any building. But, but the family unit, that's supposed to be another building block within this godly nation. And we can see as we talked last week, all of these different commandments were slowly we're not even slow anymore. We've drifted so far away from them in our culture. We see, why did we stop doing this? Because we started thinking that we can be our own human authority. We, we thought we can be the authority on morality when we can't. How could we? We're not perfect. But God is, and that's why God is the authority. So that's what he's telling us to do. Children, obey, honor your father and mother. And he says, this will teach you now to save you from trouble later. Because he says, He who does this will have long life in the land that God has given them, showing that I'm going to keep the promise I gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I passed it down to you. I'm going to give you the land. But if you don't learn authority now in the home, you're going to have to learn it the hard way later, and it could come at the cost of your life, which means you're not going to live very long. That's still how it works today. You either teach your kids authority and honor and how to respect people in the home, or they're going to learn it somewhere else, and they're going to learn it a lot harder through incarceration or other other difficulties that are even harder. But you Christians, this is what God is commanding us. Honor your father and your mother and children. That's for us too, if you're still in the home. Honor, respect them. As we age with our parents, honor, respect them. Give them weight. Show them the respect that is due them. It's a command for God from God and it's for the protection of the family. Commandment number six. It says, you shall not murder. Now, in the original language, this, this book is originally written, recorded, spoken in Hebrew. And in the original Hebrew, it's just two words. It's don't kill. That's what God says. Don't kill. I, I don't want you to kill each other. Now, as we look in the Hebrew Bible, we look in the Old Testament as a whole, we can find that there are eight different words that he could have used for kill if he wanted to, but he uses this one specifically. And this one specific word that he uses, it's never used in the context of capital punishment or the lawful killing of somebody who has been found guilty of a crime by two or three witnesses, right? So it's not speaking about that situation. It's also never found within the context of a military conflict or a war, right? That's a separate issue. This is talking specifically about the unlawful killing of an innocent human being. Just killing to kill, premeditated murder, allowing something that wasn't worthy of death to escalate to the point of actually taking the life of somebody else. That's what it means. That's what God is saying. Now, what does this teach us about God? It teaches us this. All human life has value. I want you to understand that you listening right now, your life matters. Your life matters. And it matters to who? It matters to God. And you know who else it should matter to? You and I, Christians. Because that's who he's speaking to. He's saying, you don't kill each other. And I don't know, I kind of take this, I'm like, why did he have to say that, right? Doesn't that go without saying, don't kill each other? With my kids sometimes, I have to say, hey, don't punch each other in the face, right? It's kind of a joke, but I'm like, doesn't that go without saying? Shouldn't we already know that? Don't punch each other in the face. But yet I have to tell them that sometimes, right? God has to tell us, don't kill each other. Why? Look around. We kill each other. 
Why do we do that? Because we don't obey God's word. Because our vertical relationship isn't right with the Lord and our horizontal relationship isn't right with one another. We do things a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. But God says, no, I value life. I'm the author and finisher of life. I'm the prince of life. I don't want you to just take things for granted. I don't want you to devalue life. I care about you. I love you. And then Jesus takes this same command and he takes it all the way back to the actual thought. He takes it back before the action takes place in the hands. Look at some reference verses I have for you. Still from that great teaching from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 Verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus starts out and says, hey, you remember, don't you? You shall not murder, right? God said that. We're like, oh yeah, we remember. We're reading the moment when God said it in the book of Exodus. But he says, if you do that, you will be in danger of the judgment. Now, premeditated murder was a capital offense under the law of God. That person was to be stoned to death with two or three witnesses verifying that this happened. This person is to be executed. And so we say, you're going to be in danger. And Jesus says, if we just have anger in our heart towards our brother without cause we're thinking whoa jesus is escalating rather quickly just someone who says raka or you fool or you airhead or you idiot we're thinking "Uh oh like uh, i i drive you know i commute a lot and those things always come out of my mouth well take it serious what jesus is saying he's saying before there's a physical assault that may lead to, to to murder he says it begins with a character assault. It comes initially with you and I just thinking, it's okay, listen, to devalue that person's life. They're a moron. They're a fool. They're an idiot or whatever escalation that should go. I'm sorry, kids, I'm not trying to teach you words, right? But whatever that situation takes it, that is the beginning of the process that if it goes unchecked can lead to murder, it is the first just, it's, I'm angry without a cause. I'm angry over an offense that isn't worthy of execution. But I don't take that thought captive. I don't take that situation to the Lord. I continue to fester on that and repeat it and repeat it. And all of a sudden the enemy finds a foothold because he's come for one reason, to kill, still and destroy. And he loves to feed those accusations in our heart. And before long, we're not even walking with the Lord. We're being used by the enemy to go about his evil plan. When would we ever want to be a part of that? Not in the right mind, not walking by the Spirit, not first loving God, not agreeing to love our neighbor as ourself. But the whole thing can can perpetuate down that path. And Jesus says, I want you to cut it off right there. The moment I overreact to somebody and who, you know, drives a little erratic, you know what? I need to check my heart. Because what just came out of my mouth wasn't okay. And I don't want that to be in there. That's what this commandment should do in our hearts. When Jesus backs this thing up, he says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's really hard to love your neighbor yourself if you're calling everybody demeaning names. It's really hard to have love for the people around you if you think they're unworthy of your love. Listen, if they're not unworthy of God's love, they're not unworthy of your love. 
And for, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for our sins. He's already demonstrated the greatest act of love for the world, the cosmos, every single human being who has ever and will ever live. He loves them, church, which means I need to love them. They're not unworthy of God's love. They're not unworthy of my love. And for some of us, we need to repent. We need to repent of the names we call people. We call them far far worse than fools. We need to repent. That is anger in our hearts, that the spirit of God, the verses we have in front of us are saying that is not okay. That's not okay. So you take that in the quiet place of your heart to the Lord and you let him work that out. But but you need to see God values life. And if God values life, I want to speak life to people. I want everyone to know their life matters before God and their life matters to me. Everyone. That's the heart of what he's saying here. Commandment number seven. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, what does this one mean? It speaks of marital infidelity. It speaks of breaking the marital covenant, breaking that marriage bond, that sacred bond between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, by engaging in marital relations outside of that context. And when you do that, that's called committing adultery. And it breaks down the marriage. It breaks down the constructs of that sacred union that God has sown together. What God has joined together, let man not separate. One of the best ways, or best is the wrong word, one of the worst ways, because one of the the most effective ways to tear apart what God has sown together is to break that marriage covenant by, by betraying, violating that sacred space that belongs to a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But then we, we think about this, Jesus, what is he teaching us about here? What is God teaching us about her? He says marriage is to be valued. It's to be guarded, protected, fortified, fought for, defended. He tells us here, I love marriage. It makes his top 10. It's number seven. I love marriage. Don't commit adultery. I don't want this marriage to dissolve. I don't want this marriage to go down that path. We could talk all about the picture that it is of Christ and the church and it's good and it's true. But listen, he also just loves your marriage. He loves marriage. He's for you. And so when he speaks this, he's just speaking in this same thing that we would talk about. Why honor father and mother? Because the family unit, best defined by the marriage unit, is one of the best building blocks for God's nation Israel, for a, a, a moral nation. As goes the family, or as goes the marriage, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the, the, the society, the culture, and everything starts to trend down a negative path. We can see that just looking around our own culture. We've been seeing this for for decades, but it's trending towards a negative pattern as we just spiral out of control. When he says, when he speaks of adultery, it's actually the word pornea, and it's sexual immorality. That's what it is, and isn't it crazy? We live in such such a sexually immoral culture. We don't even call it immoral anymore. People don't call it immoral anymore. But you know, God has never not called it immoral. It's immoral. It's pornea. It's where we get a word for pornography. And it starts to destroy the very constructs of a marriage. And I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because what Jesus says here in regards to this, in regards to pornography, Jesus takes this to the Sermon on the Mount, just like he did with murder, and he backs it all the way up to the thought. Long before the action is taken with our hands and adultery physically takes place, look at what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. 
He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Think about what Jesus says. Do you want to love me? Do you want to obey me? Then I'm asking you to be faithful to your spouse, to have eyes only for your spouse, to guard your heart at the point of thought, at the point where you see something. For us, it's, it's hard not to see somebody once, right? You, you see someone coming from the corner, you look, but that second look is probably unnecessary because you know what it's going to lead to. I love to think in my heart, and I got this from a book that I'd love to give you if you struggle in this. I love to look. That second look may destroy everything I love and hold dear in my life. That second look may lead me to a place that I never want to go. And what Jesus tells me is to guard my marriage, to guard my heart, to guard my eyes. And so I'm telling you that same thing. That's, his, that's what Jesus is saying. He scales this all the way back to the point where that thought comes in Christians. We know. We know when that thought, they're like, that's, this isn't good. I need to come to the Lord and say, God, I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to love people as, as you've called me to love them, but I need your strength here. And when it comes to, to sexual immorality, to sexual temptation, the command is always flee it. Get out of there. Don't think I'm going to be strong enough. Remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife. He gets the heck out of Dodge because I'm like, mm, give me spiritual strength here. We don't have it. Get out of there. Put your sandals on your feet or as he did, you run out there without a cloak. You get out of there. That's what he does, but it's very serious. This is God's moral law that hasn't changed. And when you think about this context, who's our neighbor in this context? Who's he telling us to love? He says your spouse. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor is your spouse. Be faithful to him or her. Give yourself to him or her and them only. Have eyes for them. Guard that marriage. Fortify your marriage. And I want to tell you, don't think for a second that God's heart isn't for you and your marriage. This is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain for sexual immorality and possess your body with honor. But this is the will of God. You know when something is the will of God, that means it's absolutely possible for us to do it. Some of you are thinking, I've tried this. I've tried to surrender this over and over and over, and I haven't gotten there yet. I say, don't stop trying. Don't stop coming to the Lord to be strengthened in the inner man, in the inner person, strengthened by his spirit to overcome. It's his will. You think about Jesus rising from the grave. We think, how did he rise from the grave? Oh, it was the will of God that the Holy One would not see decay. It was the will of God that, that, that Jesus was going to rise from the grave. But do you remember what had to happen before he rose from the grave? He had to, in blood, in tears, in sweat, he had to pray it out. Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. He had to go to a cross where he was crucified. We need to go through some of that in some of the struggles that we deal with. But as you do that and as you pray, not my will be done, your will be done. I guarantee you, he will strengthen you. He will give you all that is at his disposal. What is it God's disposal, by the way? Everything, everything. Because it's his will. It's his will. That's what it says. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God. So why is this so important? Why are we making this so important? Because we can't love our neighbor if we're lusting for them. We can't love people as God is calling us to love if we're polluting and corrupting the relationships around us. It can't be done. 
And if we're called to do this, something has to be crucified and we need our flesh crucified so we can walk by the Spirit. So we just need to agree with this. I know back-to-back tough ones, right? Murder and adultery, those are tough. But I'm not gonna take anything off of them because Jesus doesn't take anything off of them. He adds more to them, which means we just have to say, God, I need your help. I need your help. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I agree with your word. I agree with your will. I need your strength. Equip me for what I need to walk in your way. Please pray that in your heart. And know there's accountability in your church. We would love to have people come alongside you, walk with you. Guys with guys, ladies with ladies, we'd love to hear what's going on. You are not alone. Let God be victorious in this situation. This is where you are at. This commandment is given to you to protect your marriage, to protect your families, to be faithful as a husband or a wife. Commandment number eight is you shall not steal. Now this again, it's just two words in the original Hebrew, no stealing. And with many of us, I think many of us, we've gone through these 10 commandments or we're going through them here and, and you agree, well, yeah, of course not. I mean, I'm not gonna steal. I'm, I'm not gonna rob a bank. I'm, I'm not gonna steal anyone's car. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna try and pickpocket anyone, right? Like, we're, we're, I don't wanna, I'm not a thief. But I want you to think about how often this is allowed, tolerated in our lives in such a subtle little way. I've got a picture here that I want to show you. This is a picture of a painting. And this is a picture. A woman is coming to a butcher to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. That's what's going on in this picture. But I want you to see this. She's coming. She's saying, I want to buy this. But notice what she's doing. With her index finger, she's pushing up the scale. Right, Because she's trying to deceive the butcher by showing that the turkey doesn't weigh as much as it actually weighs. And, and what is he doing simultaneously? He's pushing down with his index finger on the scale. Look at their faces. They, ha- they both have this tiny, di- like, tiny deceptive little smile that they're getting away with something that they think the other is unaware, and yet they're both doing the same thing. Now, neither of those people would think of themselves as a thief, But what are they doing? They're stealing. One is trying to get something less than what it's owed by deceiving through stealth that it doesn't weigh what it weighs. The other is trying to oversell something by pushing down the scale, but again, it's through stealth. It's through deception. It's stealing. That is not loving your neighbor as yourself. That is not how God treats us. That is not how God would want us to treat other people as ambassadors of him. So listen, I'm not saying, please understand, I'm not saying that you you can't barter or negotiate or try to get the best deal to do that. But do it honestly. Do it up front. Do it in the light of the conversation, not through some form of deception or manipulation. That is not for us Christians. That is not what God is calling his people to be about. That's not how you love your neighbor. Think about this. Who's the neighbor in this situation? The person you're in in, in relationship with the person that you're having an exchange with, the person who's, who's near you, around you, the person that you have the potential to steal from, which could be anyone at any time, couldn't it? Right? It could, which means, again, there's no escape here. We're, we're to love all those people that we're in horizontal relationship with. What does this teach us about God? It teaches us that God's provision is our li- in our lives is actually a stewardship that he's entrusted to us. 
Did you catch that? The things that God provides for us in our lives are actually to be seen as a stewardship, something that he has entrusted in our hands. What that really means is all things really belong to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. And think about that. If we view everything as his, we would never want to steal from God. But it reminds us, right, there was one guy who we know who wanted to steal from God. We remember the book of Joshua, we remember the man named Achan. We remember the, the, the story, the account of Joshua and, and God bringing that great victory over the city of Jericho, the great fortified city. And yes, it was a strange battle plan. No swords were drawn, but God brings about a great victory because he wants everyone to know, I am the one who fights for you. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Great, great stuff there. But remember, God says, of all the spoils in Jericho, their first victory, victory through the conquest of the land. He said, it all belongs to me. It's all mine. I'll give you some spoils later, but the ones at Jericho, the first fruits, they're all mine. But what does Achan do, right? He sees a jacket and some gold and silver. And he's like, man, I'd really look good in that jacket. That, that Babylonian garment, that jacket, oh, it'd really look good on me. And he says he covets it. We'll talk about covetousness in a minute. But he sees it. He wants it. He can't stop thinking about it until he steals it. And then he's going to bury it in his tent and say, oh, one day I'm going to be able to enjoy that. I'm going to be rocking my jacket. I'm going to have a billfold full of money. He never gets to enjoy it for one day. He never gets to spend a single cent of that because he stole it. He acquired it the wrong way. And eventually it's going to be brought to light and it's going to lead to his own demise. But that's our lesson in this, in this context. We don't want to gain things that way. Listen, if you work hard for something and you're working under the Lord and you've saved for it and you acquire it, praise God. He's, he's, he's given you the ability. He's given you the education. He's given you the wherewithal. Great, enjoy it. But don't acquire it the wrong way. You don't enjoy it the same way and it actually leads to, to this broken intimacy and it can be something that, that gets in front of you and your relationship with the Lord. And those things that we have, again, praise God for the things that he's given us. That's great. But they're a stewardship, which means we have some possessions, but our possessions never have us. We don't allow those things to, to identify us, to define us. They're not these things that we cling to like little idols. No, the Lord's provided. Praise the Lord, but it's his. Which means if he wants it again, hey, here. If it, if it can be a blessing to someone else, here. Because I'm just using it for God's glory. That's what he's saying here. Don't steal from one another. Don't try to gain things through stealth. Trust in the provision of God and treat the things as if they're all God's and you're not going to want to steal from one another. You're not, you're not gonna, going to want to steal something from the Lord. He's a good father and he gives good gifts. Commandment number nine says, you shall not lie. This is, this literally says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You should not make things up to try and get someone else in trouble or to try to make yourself look better. You shouldn't lie. And we're thinking, well, well why? Well, well, number one, because God commands it. And you're not able to love your neighbor very well if you're not trustworthy. If the things that come out of your mouth just can't be trusted because they're dishonest, it's really hard to share the truth with someone who thinks of you as dishonest. So don't do that. Let, let your yes be yes. Let, let the words that come out of your mouth be something that you keep your vows. You keep what you say you're going to do. Some of you may remember this. There was a football coach in 2001. This, this guy had bounced around at a few smaller schools, and in 2001, he finally lands the head coach position at the University of Notre Dame. And this is like the coach's dream. This, this guy is, he's on cloud nine. I can't believe him the coach of the University of Notre Dame. But you know what happens? He only lasts as the coach for five days. Five days. 
Never gets to run out of that legendary tunnel leading his team into battle. Never gets to coach one game. Never even gets to coach one practice. Because what happens? They start digging into his resume and they find out he lied about it, right? Lies will catch up with you. He threw in a master's degree there that, you know, turns out he didn't have. It's probably not a good thing to do. He threw in some years of collegiate stardom at some smaller school. Uh, never played there. Those, those things didn't happen. But listen, for 21 years, all those other schools, nobody, nobody was the wiser. Nobody went and checked until now he's at Notre Dame. And they find out you actually lied on your resume. You lied on your resume, and he had to resign after five days. Now his own brother, his own brother, in, in his defense, says, "Really, who's telling truth on their resumes anyway?" And I say, "Christians, we are. Christians, that's what we do. We obey the Lord. Why? Because we want to see God swing wide open doors and get all the glory for it." We don't want to exaggerate ourselves and build something on a false pretense. That's like building your house on the sand. We don't want that. We want God to get the glory to do what he's going to do through the open doors or the closed doors. But we're trusting him. Don't lie about it. And I know this one can be hard because sometimes this happens to me sometimes. Honestly, this happens to me sometimes where I'm, I'm talking and you know, you're kind of in the moment and like everything's going, you're kind of revved up and you're like, blah, and you're like, oh, the, the Holy Spirit's like, oh, when did that happen? Because like, I'm pretty sure that never happened. And you're like, oh, and the moment is like, you have like right now to say, I, I shouldn't, I don't know why I said that part. Like, oh, that didn't happen. I'm sorry, I got carried away. You either have that moment or like, it's on, it's growing legs and it's out there and you better keep track of it. That's a lot harder way to live. So when you go into those moments, just take them with, mm, that wasn't right. I'm, I'm sorry, that wasn't true. And now it's done and it's over and you move on. And it will get to the point where you'll stop embellishing and, and you'll stop exaggerating some of those things because you're just sensitive to what God is doing. Don't lie. Be honest. Be a truth bearer. Be someone who speaks truth and can be trusted. Commandment number 10, the last of God's top 10, he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not covet your neighbor's anything. And we come back and we think about Achan here. What Achan is going to do when he sees those things in the book of Joshua is he's going to see them, and it says he covets them, which literally means he desires them. But it's not just the desire of something. It's not just like, oh, I saw that cool shirt in the, in the window at the Volcom store and thought, oh, that'd be cool. It's not just desiring it. It's desiring something you know is not yours. You know it can't be had by you. You know it belongs to somebody else. And what that means is he saw it and he knew those belonged to the Lord. He knew that God had passed word through Joshua that all the spoils of Jericho belonged to the Lord. And so to covet it is to want it anyway, even though you know you can't have it. And that is something, again, it starts in a desire of the heart. It's amazing here in Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 20, this covetousness is actually dealing with a condition of the heart. It is one of those things that says, if I desire it, I need to have it, and I'm willing to get it at whatever means necessary. That's covetousness. And what that is going to do is it's going to slowly teach you falsely that if I get what I desire, the external things, that's going to make me happy. That's that false idea of material salvation that our world thrives on, that this, this, this mystery Babylon or this world system thrives on. Material salvation, you gotta have the next thing. You better get the upgrade. You better get that new device. Whatever it is, I gotta have the next thing because if I don't have it, I'll never be satisfied. 
But you know what you find out is that pursuit to be satisfied through external things is actually what never satisfies. It's a bottomless pit. There's like a few days where you're infatuated with something, you get it, and then you have, and you're like, eh, it really wasn't all it was cracked up to be. So what's the next big thing? And covetousness is trying to teach us that God isn't our contentment, that God isn't our all in all, that I need more things to be happy. And that's a lie, Christians. That's a lie. This is teaching us, God is teaching us, I am your satisfaction. I am your contentment. Jesus will go so far as to say this. The last reference verse we'll look at this morning, Luke twelve fifteen. Jesus says this, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. That whole idea that he who dies with the most toys still wins. No, he just still dies. And in most cases, he dies apart from the life-giving knowledge of who God is shown through his son because he spent his whole life chasing possessions. And all you have is a bunch of things that are going to outlast you when you're gone, lost for eternity. Don't get sucked into that. God, because he loves his people. God, because it's important. God, because he knows the tendencies of our own hearts to see something shiny and get distracted. Let's keep your eyes fixed upon me. Don't covet. Don't desire something you can't have. Want what you do have. Be grateful for what you do have. And when the Lord provides other things, be grateful for those things too. But don't let those things be uh, something that possesses your heart. They're not our hope. They're not our identity. Our life is found in Jesus. Our contentment is found in Jesus. And no matter the external things that come and go, fade or break down, buy or sell, whatever the case may be, they're going to come and go. But our love for Jesus, that's what abides forever. That's our hope. That's our trust. So this whole, this whole top 10, all of these things, things that God says with his own voice, things that God can say, this is how I want to be loved. Love me this way. That's the first four. Love others as yourself. Those are the last six. But I want to encourage you, come to these with the faith of a child and just say, God, here's what you want me to do. Will you help me obey you? We don't have to be those people that look at the law as a cold, dead, religious document. We can look at the law as it's living and it's active and it's actually been written upon our hearts. And we have the strength and supply of the Spirit of God to help us all along the way. We can agree with him and say, God, I want this done. Your will be done in my life, not mine. And that's what I want to do. In fact, as we close out our service, we forgot to mention this earlier, but we wanted to take communion today. So even now as I'm talking, I want to encourage you, get up, get a piece of bread, rip that up, break some bread, get a cup, get some water, because if you haven't prepared it now, we're going to do this and I want you to be a part of it. But we're doing this to just simply come back to the vertical relationship that Jesus made right. We're coming back to say, if I truly seek God with my whole heart, if I seek to love him with my whole heart, all these other things are going to be added unto me. I'm going to have a desire to do what I should do and not to do what I don't do because I'm just infatuated with Jesus. I'm just spending time with him. He changes us from the inside out. And that's, that's really what the new covenant is all about, is being in a relationship with Jesus. And we can only be that way, as you remember, the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus. And so that's what we want to do. So grab some bread, grab some cup. We're going to pray together as we read just a few more verses and partake of communion, communion and close out with a worship song. But the Apostle Paul, this is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the same night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's do that. Fathers, we come to you this morning and we remember Jesus. And we think about all these laws and we think about these, these things that you've commanded us, these things that you've set before us as a target on the wall. Father, I don't think there can be a heart that is listening, mine included, that isn't convicted by at least one thing or multiple things. Father, I think of, I think of my own life and I go, I've, I've, I've failed to live up to your perfect standard, Jesus. I failed to, to keep these commandments, not even the least of them, which means I'm guilty of them all. And every time we look at your perfect and holy and just law, that's the same conclusion we always arrive at. We fail to live up to your perfect standard. But we can rejoice this morning because there is no longer condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, for you fulfilled it. And you fulfilled it by dying in our place. That's what we remember this morning. This broken body, it's your body that's been broken for us. By your stripes, we have been healed. And so we rejoice over that and and partake the bread together. Let's take the bread, church. Paul continues and says in verse 25, in the same manner, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we just lift this cup as well, Father. We we know you set the example, you set the precedent that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. You tell us that the, the blood, the life is in the blood. And we hold this cup because it's symbolic that you spilled all your blood for us that you bled in our place, that your blood has washed us white as snow. You are the Passover lamb. And so as we come, before we think about leaving and putting these these things in practice, Father, we just come and say, God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us to the foot of the mountain. Thank you for bearing us up on eagle's wings. And Father, we just ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. You cleanse us from the inside out and you restore us as we seek to walk with you. Thank you for the new covenant in your blood. We proclaim your death until you come. Let's take the cup, church. Amen. I do hope you, you partook of that with us. And I just want you to I just want you to be encouraged. Jesus is so for you. Every single one of these things that he, lay, he lays out. If you ever heard God's commandments or his enablements, it's true because what he commands, he equips us to be able to obey him in. So do that this week. Tune in. There'll be a post-fellowship Zoom after this song. I want to be able to see you all on it and being able to fellowship and encourage one another. God bless you, church family. Have a great rest of your week.